Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the uh, Psalm 23. As I said this morning, to keep the heat off the people that are hosting, we're going to condense the order of service. So two songs and right into the preaching. So we're going to look at Psalm 23 this evening. Again, my headspace as I was prepping this week, dealing with everything that was going on. Bond servant, master, just not on my radar. I think we need something a little bit more uplifting in such difficult times. So Psalm 23, perhaps it's one we all know, we all know off by heart because we said it when we were 12, uh, but it's a good for us to be reminded of it. So let's read Psalm 23. The Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray once again. Lord, God, we are thankful again that you watch over your flock. And we ask, oh God, that you'd feed your people, whether it's here and other places, that we would know a sense of your spirit amongst us, that we would, again, have divine illumination concerning these things. You would comfort and aid and strengthen. Thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. Now you watch over us each and every day. And we pray, oh God, that we would have faith and trust that come what may, we would do what is right and what is good in your sight. And so we pray, oh God, we be reminded that you are our shepherd, that you are the one who watches over us. You are a host who prepares even a, a table in the presence of our enemies. We know that we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. So encourage us, aid us, we pray. Give us illumination, strengthen your people. If any here today listening that do not know you, we pray that you would save them. We're thankful, oh God, that you are mighty to save. So we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, perhaps Psalm 23 is one that we all know off by heart. We've said it in grade two, at least that's when I said it. But perhaps sometimes when we recite those ones that we know so well, we sometimes forget or forget to penetrate what the psalm actually means and what it looks like. And perhaps one of the reasons we know it isn't just the fact that it's short, it's also the fact that it gives us much comfort when we read it, especially in times of difficulty. One thing I really love about the Psalms is their realness, the reality of the shadows that we go through, the reality that God is with us in such trials that we do face. It's real about life, and it's real about our God. And that's really what the Psalm, what the Psalter is all about. It's all about the fact it's the praise book for God's people. It's the prayer book for God's people. It's the prayer book for Christ. It's the covenantal book. It gives us the reality. You see David crying out many times with lament. There's times of confidence, times of dismay. There's many things that certainly the Christian can read and glean from as we, as, and, and recognize that there's a realness to life psalms bring, and the entire Psalter brings with it. There, now, there are different types of psalms, wisdom psalms, lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms, confidence, different types that we see throughout the Psalter. And Psalm 23 is a psalm of trust and confidence in Yahweh. And it is a psalm of Trump, uh, confidence and trust, perhaps at least surrounded by psalms of lament. Now, even though it's a simple psalm in how we read it, there are many things about it that are complex. How do verses 5 and 6 go with verse 4? What's the setting? Many difficult things to consider as we, can, as we look at this so-called simple psalm. But there are many good and wonderful things that we can glean from it. And one clear problem that emerges in Psalm 23 is one perhaps verse we know off by heart, 
that though, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the reality that God's people face in this life. We shall walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And perhaps maybe more than ever, at least for North Americans, I know that perhaps there are others that have gone through something like this before. We are walking through the valley of the shadow of death in a very tangible way. It can mean many different things. It can mean many different difficulties, but certainly it does refer to extreme oppression and extreme overreach from government as well. So we must remember that, that there is the valley of the shadow of death that we do walk to as God's people, and God will lead us to the valley of the shadow of death. I think that's the comfort that we can have as we look at Psalm 23 and be reminded in this life that God walks with his people. So really in Psalm 23, we see David expresses his faith in the promises of the covenant Lord. And he does so are surrounded by these difficult psalms. So we're going to look at this uh, uh, shepherd psalm under three, uh, sorry, two headings this evening. First of all, a shepherd who provides in verses one through four. And secondly, a host who prepares in verses five and six. So a shepherd who provides and a host who prepares. Let's first look at a shepherd who provides in verses one through four. And notice in verse one, we see the shepherds of the sheep. And notice it is Yahweh. The first thing he says, the Lord. This is that covenant name of the Lord. Yahweh is my shepherd. And perhaps if you know something of your biblical history, you can go back to Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, I am who I am, the one who does not change. Or perhaps we can remember God appearing to Moses in Exodus 34 in the cleft of the rock. And he says, he proclaims the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is the same covenant Lord who is the Lord of the people. He is the Lord of the people of Israel. And whatever they go through, even, the, even King David, God walks with him. And so David comes, he says, the Lord, the covenant king, he is my shepherd. And perhaps, too, when you read the, the, the Psalms that surrounded, we see, we see, especially in Psalms 1 through 21, we see different descriptors of God. We see him described as a king, as a deliverer, a rock and salvation or salvation. But here he's described as a shepherd. Now, brethren, a shepherd is a jack of all trades. He is one who guides. He's the physician of his sheep. He is the protector of his sheep. He's the provider of his sheep. He's a tender, loving, caring one towards his sheep. It encompasses all of those things. And perhaps in such trials, we need to be reminded that God is our shepherd, our protector. So he says right away in this hymn of confidence, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he goes on to say, I shall not want. Now, again, the setting of the psalm is difficult. There's no superscript. Some psalms give us the clear background for it, the clear reason for it. But there's nothing here. It could be a time of prosperity, could be a time of difficulty. Now, Davis highlights that the surrounding psalms are ones typically of lament, especially Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, we don't just read psalms on their own. There is actually a flow to the Psalter. There is actually uh, uh, what the psalm, the, the, the way it's uh, constructed, gather or uh, put together, the way it's edited. It, it builds to a point. It builds even to Psalm 150. You see a lot of laments at the beginning, not saying there aren't psalms of praise, but towards the end, we see psalms of, of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalms of confidence. But in the midst of laments, we see a psalm of confidence. In the midst of trial, there is a trust in God. So Psalm 23 is that, that, that rock, that assurance when uh, God's people go through such difficult times. So here he confesses who God is and provides for 
and the one who provides for him. And he says, I shall not want. He shall not lack. Even in times of difficulty, he shall not lack. He shall not be without. He shall not be forgotten by the shepherd who provides for his sheep. Now, brother, a shepherd who does not provide for the sheep or feed his sheep is not a very good shepherd. You see, Yahweh is the perfect shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd who provides for those in need. So David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yahweh is the shepherd of God's people. But then in verses 2 and 3, we see that shepherding imagery continue. And we see here the provision that is that the shepherd provides in verses 2 and 3. Notice we see daily provision. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Now, again, the idea is there's permanent provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, what we can learn, what we know about the ancient or eastern practices of shepherding, typically in the summer, it was difficult to find green pastures. So they had to lead the herd. They had to lead the flock uh, uh, through various paths, through various places in order to find a proper green, a proper, a proper place to lie down. So he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He gives me provision and sustenance. He gives me food. He gives me water. He leads me beside the still waters. This is what Yahweh does. Even in difficulties, Yahweh provides and gives what we need. Yahweh leads us, uh, leads us to places that do refresh. And so then there's still waters that rejuvenate. Then the, the David says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores. It rejuvenates. How often sometimes is then when you're tired, you just need to have a good sleep, and the next day you wake up and you're rejuvenated. I certainly think the language here of restoring my soul is twofold. I think it is physically. God provides for us physically. God restores our souls physically. Sometimes God, even throughout the scriptures, you know, they are, uh, 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 Elijah, after they battle the prophets of Baal, he says, Lord, kill me. And he gives them some food, and he perks up, and he feels a little bit better. Samson as well. He kills a thousand men with the dog, uh, the donkey's jawbone. And what did he say? Lord, kill me. And the Lord gives him some water and he's restored as well. God provides for us temporally, but as well, God provides for us spiritually. I think the restoring of the soul as well is the fact that God feeds us and God uh, uh, nurses us by his word. And he nurses us even in times of difficulty. There are times when God gives us great strength great rejuvenation, great faith in times when it seems like we should have no faith. And I know he does that to highlight how good he is and how mighty he is and how weak we are and how much we need him. But he is the one who feeds. He is the one who restores. He is the one who sustains physically and spiritually for all of God's people. And certainly I think there is uh, an Exodus connection here, Numbers 10, 33. Was description a description of the people as they wander? It says in verse 33 of chapter 10. This is after the departure from Sinai. So they go to Sinai and Exodus, stay there all the way through Leviticus in the first part of Numbers. And finally, they decide to leave Sinai. And then verse 33, he says, or it says, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. The same language. God provides for the people in Israel 
that God provides, and the people in the wilderness, God provides for David, and God provides for you and I as well. He sustains, he nourishes, he certainly feeds his people. So he, he, he restores our soul. But then notice verse 3, he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. That is, he gives us the right path. Again, you can think of shepherding imagery. There is a, a path that will lead to destruction and death. There is a path that will lead to green pastures. And Yahweh leads his people in the path of righteousness. He leads them the right way to go. Now, I think this could be applied providentially. He guides us in our life to where we need to be. But perhaps more in line with the Psalter, God helps us morally. He gives us the right way to go. He gives us the right path to walk in. And certainly when we consider Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the Psalter. Psalm 2 gives us the message. And Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of uh, path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And in that, it's not as though he's saying you earn your way because you do all those things, because you keep uh, the law, but he's highlighting one who has been saved by God. Happy, blessed is the man. The way of happiness is found in God, not in the path of sinners. So he leads me in the path of righteousness. He leads me in the path that we ought to go. Might always not always be the easiest path, but he leads us in the right path, how we should follow our God, and guides us to where his sheep ought to go. So he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake as well. The shepherd's, shepherd's motive for his flock is to care for them, but he also does it for his glory. He does it for his honor. He saves his people that this God might be glorified. See, brethren, God doesn't need us to glorify him, but he saves us that we might glorify him. God is perfect life in and of himself. God doesn't need you and I. That's something the world and other ideologies believe, that God needs you and I. He, he needed relationship with you and I. He doesn't need that. There's perfect and blessed relationship in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, he cares for his people. Yet, he cares for his flock. And yet, for his name's sake, he leads us in the path of righteousness because he has said he will do this. He has said, I will care for you. He has said, I am who I am. I will not change. I will watch over you. He has said all these things. And if he said he's going to do these things for his name's sake, he will lead his people in paths of righteousness. He will lead his people the right way. So he provides. He provides for the needs of his people as well. He protects his sheep. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The dominant theme here is the idea of death. It highlights the extreme danger that one faces. And again, we can go back to the ancient Near Eastern context. And when you know, when we consider the, the cliffs of Israel, perhaps the sheep had to take a very difficult, narrow path that perhaps would have had a, you know, a, a, a fall uh, if they you know, turned to the left or turned to the right. It was a difficult way for them to get to that green pasture, but they had to be led through the valley of the shadow of death to get there. It's something that applies for God's people. Extreme danger, extreme, you know, uh, extreme uh, ridicule. 
God's people will go through that. And certainly, perhaps if you read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember Christian as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you see the picture with all the goblins and all those sorts of things. That's what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There's extreme danger that the people of God face in this life. And what's interesting is it's still one of Yahweh's paths to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The way of, the, uh, the way of righteousness isn't always the easiest path, but the way of righteousness will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death to get to green pastures. We have to go such trial and tribulation to get to that celestial city. But notice, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Again, a hymn of confidence, hymn of assurance. I will fear no evil. And the reason David does not have to fear, the reason you and I don't have to fear, is because God is with me. Whatever difficulty and trial we face, I know that's easy to say, but perhaps there is more intense persecution coming for the people of God in this part. And we must be prepared for that, brethren. We must trust in our God in that, that he will honor himself in all that he is doing. He will honor himself in all that he is doing in this world. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, perhaps as you read along, did you notice the shift in tense? In verses 1 through 3, the Lord, he, he, he. And then in verse 4, the tense shifts, you. Verses 1 through 3 highlights that the David describing who Yahweh is. But in verse 4, as, as trials come, God is nearer to him. The you are with me, the intimacy that God gives to his people in such trials. The beauty is God does dwell amongst his people in such difficult scenarios. I think of the story of John Patton, the king of the cannibals who went and, and was a missionary in the New Hebrides or modern day Vanuatu. I just love the story he talked. I, don't, I mean, I love his demeanor in the story. I wouldn't want to be, you know, where he was at that time, but he was fleeing the cannibals. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to take him out. And so one of his friends said, climb up in the tree, remain there until I get you. And then so he was up in the tree and he was up there all night. And he said he has had never had a night of comparative peace than when he was in that tree. He was in such difficulty and trial. God it will be with his people in such tribulation and sustain his people in such dangerous and perilous times. I will fear no evil for you are with me. I think it's important to recognize that, that God is with us in the good times and the bad. One of my, not one of my, probably my favorite preacher, David says, it is not that Christ is closer in the valley, but they re we realize in the valley how close he has always been. Perhaps God's people can have, if you're like me, things are going good, things are going great, you forget God, and then you go through a difficult trial, you come to God, you pray to God, and you realize, oh, God is with me and helping me through this. God has always been with us. And again, the Lord does not change. He is always with us, whether we feel like it or not. The word of God reminds us that he is with us. For you are with me. And he says, your rod and your staff, they come for me. Continuing this shepherding imagery. Now, I think in our modern context, we have a false view of shepherds. Maybe it's because of all the paintings we've seen. I think we kind of think they have soft skin, right? We kind of think they're dainty dudes who are just tender and loving and kind. They're more than that. In fact, they're big, strong, burly guys because they had to fight off wolves and lions and tigers and bears. Think about David. David fought bears. 
David fought lions. I mean, is there anybody cooler than David other than the Lord Jesus in the in the Bible? I mean, come on, he goes when the when the, the lamb is in the in the in the mouth of the lion, he grabs its beard and pulls it out. That's what David would I mean, he's a shepherd. These are mighty, burly, strong men, big biceps type men. And notice they have two weapons. They have a rod and they have a staff, and they are what comforts me. The rod that wards away the enemies. When a wolf comes, smack. When a lion comes, smack. So it wards off the enemies against the sheep. God does that. God does that a lot of the time. I think there's a lot of things we don't see that could happen in our lives that God is keeping us from. God, God is very, even when we're forgetful in our prayers, God is still very good to, to answer the prayers we don't pray, if I can say it that way. So the rod wards off the enemies, but the staff keeps the sheep in line to make sure they don't fall off the cliff, to make sure they know where they're going. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. He's got his two weapons that he uses to make sure the sheep are going the right way, to protect from without and to keep them in line from within. Those are the things that comfort him. Those are the things that give him strength. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even Jesus as well. In John 10, I think we can apply John 10, the good shepherd, as an allusion back to Psalm 23. And Jesus says, no one shall snatch them from my hand. I lay my life down for the sheep. No one shall take them away. There are many other passages that speak of Jesus as a mighty warrior. I mean, he is David's greater son. I mean, he's a rider in white, ready to make judgment. He is ready to destroy his enemies. And brother, that's important to remember as well in our trials that we face. God will defeat his enemies and make his enemies a footstool. Whatever oppression comes from toward the people of God, one of the comforts and hopes in this life is, yes, Christ's coming, but that he shall vindicate his people. He shall, uh, he shall bring those enemies who will press them in this life and bring them down. We hope they're saved, but it's not wrong to recognize the imprecatory nature of some psalms in the Bible to call upon judgment upon God's enemies. Again, you know, we miss that in our modern, delicate, sensitive times. We miss the imprecatory, mighty psalms. That's why even too, I like singing psalms because a lot of the hymns don't have imprecations in them. A lot of the hymns, yeah, they're wonderful and good, but the psalms bring about imprecation to call upon judgment. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Christ is the mighty shepherd of his people. And I think it's important for us to remember that and see that. He is our protective shepherd day by day. Again, he leads us, makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He's always with us. Not weekly. Yes, he is weekly, but not once a week, not once a month, not once a year. But every single day, God is with his people. He gives us food daily. He gives us water daily. He gives us protection daily. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be persecution that comes, but God does aid us in those times as well. There might be times we have to hunger and thirst, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that text. I can abound. I can be without. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He protects us as we walk this life. Christ is that adequate one for his people. It's important for us to remember that. Davis again says, Jesus Christ is the shepherd who is adequate for every day, who again and again restores my life. And the Christian must learn to walk with Christ here in the daily 
ground. Mundane, day by day, praying, being before him, recognizing that he's with us, recognizing that he's near, not taking for granted some of the things that we get to enjoy in this life, not taking for granted the worship of our God, brethren. We've taken that for granted. Let's just be honest. Our, our modern Western you know, context has taken for granted the worship of our God. And you know what? I doesn't, I, you know, at the same time, I do blame the government a little bit. We're not, on, we're not live here, so I think I can, you know, wax a little bit here. I don't blame the government for everything. Yeah, I do a little bit. But the church is the one who's already been treating, uh, the Christians have been the ones treating the church as non-essential. Pastors have treated the church as non-essential. We do everything else that we want on a Sunday. Oh, wait, now when push comes to shove, it's taken away. No big deal. We must honor and glorify God in the good times and the bad and cling to his truth in the good times and bad and recognize the important things in this life. And hopefully the situation teaches us those very things. Christ provides, Christ keeps, and Christ sustains, whether it's times of prosperity or times of despair and without. So we can be reminded of that. And again, the assurance is, as David says this, it's in the context of the fact that there's laments and difficulties all around him, but he has this hymn of confidence in his God. So that's a shepherd who provides. Let's then look secondly at a host who prepares in verses 5 and 6. And notice in verse 5, we see a table among enemies. Now, again, it seems odd. There seems to be an odd shift, a theme change. It goes from shepherding. It goes to now this table, host, someone in a home type idea. Perhaps, as many writers speculate, or even Calvin says as well, perhaps the metaphor shifts a little bit. Certainly, yeah, verses 1 through 4 is a metaphor, and it is about sheep, but certainly it does mean human sheep. And I think we can transition verses 5 and 6, even though we're in a home, it's where human sheep do go. They do go to a home. They dwell where God feeds his human sheep, how God hosts his human sheep. You prepare a table. Be, so I, I don't know that I fully understand everything about that. Again, that the simple and complex nature of the psalm uh, draw, uh, is difficult to determine, but I think that's good. We shift from you know, the imagery of physical sheep to human sheep. Verse 5. So we shift this idea of a host of a banquet, a banquet, the one who hosts a human flock. And notice we see something odd. There's a lot of odd things about Psalm 23. There's a lot of odd things about the Bible. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Table and enemies. That's odd, isn't it? Now, perhaps some possibilities that some commentators highlight. One is, perhaps the enemies have been destroyed, everything's great, and you're having a triumphal banquet. That could be what's going on. But I actually lean towards what Davis says. He highlights the fact that in the presence of his enemies, he has time to have a table spread given to him. In the presence of his enemies, he has time to have a full picnic. It's not just I got to eat and run because, you know, my enemies are coming down to get me. They have, God is with him and provides for him and sustains him even in the presence of his enemies. Even those enemies surrounding him, he still has time to eat and feast with what God has given to him. There's no rush for lunch. There's no rush. The table is prepared. And again, there's that comfort. Again, the surrounding Psalms highlight such trial and difficulty that God's people do go through. It's an odd 
scenario. It's an odd thing to think about. Usually when enemies are coming, you eat as fast as you can and run as fast as you can. But he's got time because Yahweh is with him. And perhaps there is an Old Testament or there is a specific example in David's life. I think there is a, uh, perhaps there could be an allusion back to uh, 2 Samuel 22, sorry, 2 Samuel 17. Even though David was the king and he was the one with whom the Davidic covenant was made, there is still quite a bit of, uh, David still goes through quite a bit. And he does a terrible thing with Bathsheba, kills Uriah, very terrible. But God also forgives him. But then God also brings about some sort of judgment upon him. And certainly we do see, you know, after that, David's life, bad things happen. And so he has to flee from his son, Absalom. And he flees to the Ammonites, his enemies. In verse 27 of 2 Samuel 17, now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Nahash, Nahash was in 1 Samuel chapter 11. He is an Ammonite from Rabbah of the people of Ammon. Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who are with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. In the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. And then notice as well, it's not just that he, he certainly provides, but he does so abundantly. Verse 20, uh, sorry, I'm getting back to Psalm, Psalm 23. Um, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Typically, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when someone walked in, you anointed them with oil as a sign of blessing. You see this in Luke chapter 7 with the lady who is forgiven, with the woman who is forgiven. You know, she anoints him with her tears, and he says to the host, why did you not anoint me with oil? And so that was supposed to happen in one's household, and it was a sign of blessing. And it was such that it was overflowing. It was such that there is great uh, provision that God gives to his people in such Difficulty that he gives them care, he gives them the best that he can give them. For there is no greater shepherd and no greater host than Yahweh of Israel. So you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, I have a table to eat at, all these things you give me, oh God. So he gives them a table among his enemies, but he also gives them a house, gives his people a house forever. Verse six. Again, super duper odd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Think about that for a second. Again, with everything we've been saying about the trials and about the, the surrounding laments, about the surrounding difficulties, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life? Perhaps we have to ask the question, how is it that goodness and mercy can follow me all the days of my life? And again, it may not be with, uh, it may not uh, be without persecution, but perhaps the focus is on that language, goodness and mercy, goodness and chesed, God's covenant faithfulness towards his people. That's how goodness and mercy follow us. It's not because we're good. It's not because necessarily because of the circumstances we're in, but it's because God is merciful. God follows us. God sees. God knows. God is with us. 
surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And certainly there is a clear example of that in the Bible with Joseph. He went through a lot, didn't he? But what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And even as well, you see, he recognized, he recognizes that throughout. And he trusts in God throughout. When he, he went, you know, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me throughout all the days of my life. Times in prison, being sold by brothers. I mean, that's just terrible, right? Being, you know, ratted out by brothers. Being, you know, you're going to be killed by brothers. Being thrown in a pit by brothers. He being sold into slavery. Eventually, God, you know, used it for the good of Egypt and for the people of the, the, the future, I guess, the people of Israel at that time, the, the, the patriarchal family, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's important to remember that. Goodness and mercy following us is not negated by the bad times. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us. And even, too, you can uh, 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 it highlights that God is with us through whatever trial we go through. Truly, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, but focusing primarily in this present evil age, but then the latter part of verse 6 is the age to come. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's his desire. That's his hope, is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are other Psalms where he highlights where he's surrounded by enemies, and he longs for one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Brother, we long for one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church is a glimpse and foretaste of that, but certainly it does highlight the new heavens and new earth in its fullness. Church is a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth, but we long for Christ to come and bring that in and usher that in. So there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no, 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 no more possibility to even have a banquet amongst my enemies. But then every enemy shall be destroyed and every tear shall be wiped away. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever beyond days. It's highlighting the eternal uh, inheritance that is given to David. And that language is forever beyond days. That's exactly what it means. So it reminds us, as David even builds the end of verse 6 there, God provides for us in this life, and he provides for us in the life to come. And has provided for us a life to come in Christ and Christ alone. Again, I love what Davis says. Again, he's one of my, he just has a good way of, way of, uh, way with words. And he talks about the journey that God's flock goes through. He says, the grassy pastures may be the normal place. The valley of the shadows, the fearful place. In front of the enemy is the dangerous place. And the house of Yahweh, the abiding place. That's what God's people long for. The abiding place forever. Forever blessings with God, with no more pain, no more sorrow, in the good shepherd, in Christ, because what he has done, he has, uh, none of his sheep shall be snatched away from him. There's an assurance that God gives that he saved us and changed us, and we have that assurance now. We know that he shall guide us and lead us to the valley of the shadow of death and lead us home as well to that celestial city. But this psalm gives God's people much assurance in this life. Gives God's people much confidence in God in this life, much uh, 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 assurances that God will protect his people in this life. I love what Kidner says. Depth and strength underlies the simplicity of the psalm. Its peace is not escape. Its content, uh, contentment is not complacency. 
there is a readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack. And the climax reveals a love which homes towards not material goal, but to the Lord himself. That's where God's people are going. To the celestial city, to dwell with the house of the Lord forever and ever. And the difficulties we face in this world remind us of that very reality. That we long for heaven. It teaches us more about ourselves. teaches us more about God. And it teaches us that we are about what our heaven, our home shall look like. In fact, there is another text that alludes to Psalm 23, and it's in Revelation chapter 7. We'll close by looking at Revelation 7 very briefly here. Right then, the book of Revelation is all about Christ's triumph, and it's written for the people of God in times of persecution. And, you know, it's not just, we don't read Revelation with our newspapers and go, okay, is this the time? That's not what it's really for. It's meant to be an encouragement, and it's meant to be a boon to the souls of the people of God to remind them about the heavenly realities. It's meant to be a reminder that God reigns supreme. And it was written for, it was written primarily for the first century, but we can apply it to our lives as well, generally, not specifically, generally. And yeah, I think one thing we can see in Revelation when we see its flow and one key to Revelation is the fact that when you read it, look for repetition. Because usually when you know, we see repetition, they're highlighting the same thing, perhaps from a different angle. And so Revelation chapter 7, 17. In context, at the end of verse 6, after these woes, after these seals, for the great day of his wrath has come. Describing that sixth seal describes the, 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 the last judgment, in my opinion, describes the last judgment that shall happen. I think all this, the sevens, Describe the same thing, but just in a different sort, in uh, a different angle. Certainly when you get to the ladder, uh, what are they? The seals, the bowls, and the, uh, the trumpet. But the bowls, the bowls, they're, they're shorter. They're more intense. They're more intensified. Again, look, you got to look for the, the, man, I can't even say it, the patterns. We got to look for the patterns and the repetition in the book as well. So the end of verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 17, for the great day of wrath has come, who is able to stand? And then before we get the seventh seal, we have this interlude. Who is able to stand? And there is, and we see this visual. The 144,000 isn't descriptive of literal Israel. It's descriptive of the people of God. It's descriptive of the true Israel throughout all generations. Who is able to stand in such perilous, who is able to stand through the wrath of God? It is the people of Israel, the true people through faith. Verse 9 after, of chapter 7, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be our God forever and ever. So who stands? What they do when they're standing before God? The praise we give to God? And then we see as well what God gives. Verse 14. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Brethren, we are living in the great tribulation. 
This present evil age is one that is full of great tribulation. It's not some specific special period uh, in the future. We are living in the tribulation now. These are the ones who pass through that great tribulation. All those who believe in the Old and the New Testament and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them, lead them to living fountains of waters. Very clear allusion back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Then notice, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7 is describing who shall stand, who shall pass through the judgment, and what is waiting for the people of God, that green pastures, that living waters that God has provided. And that would have given the people in the first century hope and encouragement to give us hope and encouragement. Another reason I think it's talking about when Christ comes back is because there is what we call recapitulation. Again, that is that, 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 that repetition. And there is repetition, not necessarily of the shepherding language, but wipe away every tear. The other place, another place that's used in Revelation is Revelation 21.4, talking about when God makes all things new. When the new heavens and new earth are ushered in, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Recapping, drawing us back to what happened, what we see in Revelation 7 with Revelation 21, is the fact that Christ prepared a great pasture for us. And it's where there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering for the people of God. So we can be reminded of that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we go through much great tribulation, that the reason that we can stand on that final day is because of Jesus Christ, because of the great shepherd, because of the good shepherd. And if you're an unbeliever here today, or if you are listening, pray that you believe on this one because you shall pass through judgment as well. He is a good shepherd. He is a nourishing shepherd. He is a forgiving shepherd. He is a mighty shepherd. He forgives his people of all their sins. Believe on him and you shall be saved. For Christ is that good shepherd. And he is the one who guides us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, let's pray. Our God, we are thankful again that you nourish us and that we shall not lack. And we're thankful, O oh God, that Christ is the shepherd who is shepherding his sheep. He is the Lamb of God who is leading us to living waters. And we're thankful, O oh God, that he will, you will wipe away every tear. We pray, O oh God, you give your people much assurance and encouragement in this life. Prepare our hearts, we pray. And prepare our hearts to trust in you. Prepare our hearts to, uh, to, to know what is right and what is good and to do that. And we pray, O oh God, you give us wisdom. Help us to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we know, oh God, that you can grant us these things when we ask, when we ask liberally. So we pray, oh God, we would cling to your promises that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. 
We pray, O oh God, that we cling to your promises that when your people are persecuted, Christ is also persecuted, that Christ sees that there is the heavenly round. Help us to cling to the promise that what man means for evil, you mean for good. Help us to cling to the promise whether we abound or whether we lack. We know, O oh God, that we, shall, uh, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So aid us and strengthen us this day. Protect us, we pray. We pray, O oh God, you be pleased to save sinners this day. We pray that you'd use this time to bring about revival and reformation, bring about salvation for many. We know, O oh God, that as people consider death and what that means and are fearful of it, they would look to the, the one who conquered death in Christ himself. So encourage our hearts and souls this day. Give us wisdom. Protect our little church. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.